You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When one wanders for 40, what comes next? For Chris Maxwell, the answer is that he shares his reflections and confessions, his observations and his questions with anyone who will take and read. The result is the collection that we're talking about today, A Slow and Sudden God, 40 Years of Wonder. This is a special episode of Christian Humanist Profiles for me, as Chris is Emmanuel College's campus pastor, a colleague in our educational work, and a friend of mine. Chris, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you, Nathan. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, Chris, this is a collection of poems from a span of four decades, so I'm curious to know something about the process of this collection. Do you have a single poetry notebook into which pages have gone over the years, a binder, or was this book more of a an act of compilation from scraps and scribbles? Yeah, I, I love the way that you worded that, the scraps and scribbles. That, <laughs> that actually should be a title of one of the poems, but... Um, that's what it is, and and you think back of uh, when I started writing this. There were uh, poems that I wrote when I was a college student, and then poems that I recently wrote last summer, right before the book. Uh, we did the final editing and publishing. I threw in a few poems right at the end. So going through those four decades, think of technology and and methods of uh, restoring and 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 just keeping information. So journal entries into a notebook, writing with pencil, writing with pen, eventually typing some and then moving toward the days of computer and, and then all of the technology now. Uh, I, I wrote the poems as methods of my personal survival. <laughs> it was prayer journaling in poetic form and various methods of writing. Also sermon preparation uh, as I was pastoring and I was as I was going through my my college years, then five years working as a youth pastor, and then 20 years as a lead pastor, and then these last 13 years working at Emmanuel College as campus pastor. All of those years, uh, my my prayer life included journaling, and for me, that is just honest, poetic form of psalmistic therapy is what I call it. Very good, and we're going to talk about some of those uh, very biblically rooted poems as we roll along. But first, I want to—I want our listeners to get a sense of the sound of this collection. So, Chris, could you uh, read the Quilt Maker from page 107? Yes, the Quilt Maker. He searched from the fragments, the scraps, the pieces of cloth of little worth. He found them. He found me. With his hands, he joined me with others, threading us together with his intricate love. He is the quilt maker. Once worthless, I am his. Now one of many diverse squares made one by the quilt maker. Together, we are lovely. And listeners, there's a footnote to this that says, you know, 1 Corinthians 12. So, uh, Chris, I mean, was this part of a, a sermon preparation or just part of devotional reading? I mean, what was the, the occasion for this poem? You know, I really can't remember uh, that, but most of them were initially my personal um, prayer devotional time as I'm studying a text. And I love, I lo- just love the process of, of Scripture. Um, and when you pastor for so many years, you want to make sure that you do not get into the habit of only studying when you are preparing. It has to be personal. And I would, I would, uh, often just study deeply into a text, and then what does it mean to me? 
and how can I say it just to me personally in ways that I may not say it to what would eventually be the audience listening to it as I preached it. And so I would personally study it and try to think of a way to creatively reinforce it to me so I don't take it for granted. Um, and, and this is one of those where I was able to just, just come up with an image that stuck with me. And it, and it really helped me personally to see that is who he is and that is what he's doing. It's not just what I am doing for him, <laughs> trying to convince him to do something for me. That, that's just his job and he's making it. And it's a title that I was not familiar with, uh, you know, giving, giving God that title. And it, and it just helped me as I studied the text and then wanted to move it into a personal, uh, a reminder for me that he is the one at work in my life. Very good. Well, our listeners have a sense of the sound of your poetry. I want you to talk a little bit about the look of this collection. Uh, what readers will notice immediately when they buy this book is not only conventional nouns and pronouns for the persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, but also metaphorical nouns, quilt maker, and even adjectives modifying the nouns get capitalized, but nothing else does. Not I, not Moses, not Georgia, not Paul, nothing else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell our listeners the story of these choices. Have you always done that when you wrote poetry over yeah. these four decades, or is that re- the yeah. result of a more recent editorial process? Well, it, it was a very interesting, and I appreciate you asking that question, because that often gets uh, a lot of the initial attention. Uh, but it uh, it was something that for me was a was a healthy reminder that um you know I, it, god is the one that i want to remember and as i was writing the personal journal in poetic form for many years you know any reference to god was all that i included in caps and everything else was just lowercase and it was easy back then because if you were just writing with with pen and and paper, <laughs> you could control it, but now the computers try to convince you, <laughs> no, you're not allowed to do that. Right, auto-correct in the world of poetry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will decide what we use, and you cannot. You have no say in the matter. <laughs> but so, uh, and, and it was a variety, though. I didn't do it all the time. I, I, I did it when I felt like I needed to, as that personal reminder. So when we had, were working on this draft for the book, uh, we were putting this together and, you know, very pleased that the publisher agreed to accept a book of poetry because not all do. Um, so for him to say yes to it was a, was a positive. But then we're working with two editors and then the publisher is like, all right, what do we do with this? And and they were all in agreement. Well, it has to be consistent. And, and we like this unique style of crisp because it is revealing something. It's surprising. It's intriguing. But it's also coming from his heart because I described to them the – uh, the reason, just reminding myself about God, who he is, and then who we are, and the knowledge and the, the wisdom that that brings, honoring him, but reminding me that I'm tiny and I'm, and I need him. I need him and all of those images that I use, God to be larger and I'm so small. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some of our listeners are going to want me to ask, and I kind of want to ask too, is E.E. E. Cummings part of this story at all? Um, just reading, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, years of reading, but, uh, it, it did not sway the decision. I got anyway. you. I got you. Yeah. But, but that was definitely part of the influence. Very good. Very good. Well, Chris, one of the themes that, that runs through this collection and that I've heard you talk about in your preaching at Emmanuel's chapel services 
is the practice of noticing. This is something that isn't just in the observation section, although it is certainly there, but really all through this collection. So in what ways is this just a contingent focus of your verse? And to what extent does the practice of noticing weight inherent in the practice of writing poetry itself? Well, that is a, that is a great question. And, and I believe this is, this is one of those areas where the poems that were written before I had an illness um, are very different than those that are, you know, during the recovery time and then post illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chris, real quick, because most of our readers won't know your story the way that I do. I mean, just give a okay. a brief nut or what is that called? Nutshell. The elevator that's what it's speech. Called. Yeah, the elevator <laughs> yeah, speech. Yeah, the elevator speech. There we go. <laughs> but um, yeah, in in uh, I was pastoring the church in Orlando, and I was very had a great memory. I had I was uh, very intelligent. I was more academic, um, you know, I had books of the Bible memorized, uh, and I was doing a lot of curriculum writing um, from an academic level. Uh, but in March of 1996, uh, I had an illness. I had encephalitis. I had never been sick before. I had encephalitis, and they did not think I would live. I'm there in the hospital dying. <laughs> you know, my wife, our three sons, the church, nobody has a clue what's about to happen. But uh, as you can tell, I did recover, but I came back to life as what my wife called me in one of the one of the TV shows that they had us on. She calls me now her second husband because I'm the same name, same man, but very different man. And uh, part of my recovery involved journaling. I was I was dying in the hospital, Nathan, but I was journaling. And we kept some of those and used them in this book. And we wanted to include some of those because they're just raw, psalmistic confessions of, of desperation. Um, and, and so I had to, had to find, you know, methods of, of survival in doing that. And journaling, writing was therapeutic for me, but it was also helping the brain to learn to learn again. I couldn't remember the names of our three sons. I couldn't write again. And uh, one of my editors said the the scholar, Chris, who liked to, to include poetry now became the poet. Uh, you know, so it, it fit better with my, with my brain. And I think it was just, uh, you know, just a better match uh, for where I'm going, because so much of that that I that I wrote before was was a little bit deeper, and now it's just more the now, the noticing what is beside us, what is near us, uh, what have we missed in life, what do we get in such a hurry and run right past, and and poetic journaling has been a method for me of of doing that. Uh, I think. Um, can I read a quote from Eugene Peterson that really describes to me uh, and to, to your audience of kind of how this plays out for me? Please do. Uh, in um, Subversive Spirituality, Eugene Peterson says, The first thing that a poet does is to slow us down. We cannot speed read the poem. The poem requires rereading. Unlike prose, which fills the page with print, poems leave a lot of white space, which is to say that silence takes its place alongside sound as significance, essential to the apprehension of these words. We cannot be in a hurry reading a poem. We notice connections, get a feel for rhythms, hear resonances. All of this takes time. There is a lot to see, to feel, to sense. 
We sit before the poem like we sit before a flower and attend to form, relationship, color. We let it begin to work on us. When we are reading prose, we are often in control, but in a poem, we feel like we are out of control. Something is going on that we cannot pin down right away and so often get impatient. In prose, we are after something, getting information, acquiring knowledge. We read as fast as we can to get what we want so we can put it into good use. But in poetry, we take a different stance. We are prepared to be puzzled, to go back, to wait, to ponder, to listen. This attending, this waiting is at the core of the life of faith, the life of prayer, the life of worship, the life of witness. If we are in too much of a hurry to speak, we commit sacrilege. Poets slow us down. Poets make us stop. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. And to me, I just I just love the way he worded that because that's how my life changed. But the the writing of poetry helped me to experience that slowing down process. You know, I've written four books in a in a pause series, encouraging us to to hit pause and slow down in the middle of our hurried life. And even though this book is not part of that series, it's a part of the life of just just hit pause and let the let the poems take you in places instead of taking the quickest street, the, the quickest route from one destination to another. Go on the side streets and notice the beauty that you often miss when you're in a hurry staring straight ahead. Mm-hmm. And listeners, you'll you'll recognize that title, Subversive Spirituality, from a recent Christian Humanist podcast when we talked about Gene Peterson. And uh, Chris, it's interesting, that was one of the books that I read in that first year of seminary, uh, mm-hmm. just on my own. It wasn't an assignment, but uh, mm-hmm. it was one of those books that uh, helped me to believe uh, that as, you know, an undergraduate English major that I had a place in seminary next to the, the very go get CEO church planner types, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because I was much more of a, a slow thinker. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that book. I really do. Yeah, it's good. You mentioned in there, Chris, the, the psalmic character of some of your poems. And I mean, the Psalms, mm-hmm. uh, because I've heard you talk in chapel and because of our conversations over these last 10 years, I know that they are prominent in your spiritual life, uh, and a lot of these poems will have footnotes, you know, referencing psalms. Um, yeah. Talk to our listeners a little bit about uh, where the psalms take their place in your your spiritual life and in your life as a poet. Mm-hmm. Great, great question, and I love I love uh, writing about the psalms, preaching about the psalms, but I love praying the psalms, mm-hmm. and and it's so helpful when you. When you visit a psalm and you just go there and and stay for a while, and you know those that that are written, maybe David wrote this psalm when he was trying to escape from Saul. Okay, how did he feel? And and in poetry, so beautiful because uh, you know it's not just follow these three rules <laughs> and get to heaven kind of stuff. This is this is honest confession and it's mood swings and we're talking to God one minute and we're cussing the enemy the next minute and we want them to be destroyed and defeated, but then we calm down and praise the Lord. Isn't it this interesting mix of of moods happening in the Psalms, but I love the honesty and, and the variety of pace and flow. Uh, it's preaching one moment. And so I, I think about David felt this. Hiding in a cave, he felt this, but he did not turn against God because of that. He desperately cried out to God in poetic form, and that's the initial 
draft of this prayer that eventually became a hymn of a nation. Mm-hmm. And then Nathan, think think of maybe Jesus learning those those ancient songs, those ancient poems, prayers, songs as a child. David praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then Jesus praying that. Now us having our chance to pray that. It's merging the present with the past, and it's honoring the history. But I love, you can tell just the way I'm talking about it, it is therapeutic for me, and it has helped me survive life, pastoring, living with a damaged brain, living now with epilepsy, not having a memory, being told I would never be able to write again, and now I'm writing books. How? Well, I needed a method of survival. And to me, as I, as I used this phrase earlier, it's psalmistic therapy. And, and one of the ways it works for me is and when I talk about the psalms, I talk about poetry. Often you don't hear many sermons on just the, the beauty of poetry and scripture. And, and that's what I've been talking about now since this book came out. And, and, I, and I'm focusing on these, these words, all beginning with R, um, realize you know, let's realize what we're going through, how we feel, what's there. And that's very good for me as a as a pastor and a pastoral counselor, helping people to realize how they feel. And so let's realize, let's respond to what we realize, then let's find healthy ways to release, release the hurt, release the pain. And that's what journaling and, and poetic prayer can do. It helps us release it and then receive. And, and once we release, let's begin to receive peace to take the place of that pressure, and let's move toward rejoicing. So that that works for me, and, and it's therapeutic of releasing, responding, uh, I mean, realizing, responding, releasing, receiving, and rejoicing. And that helps even this damaged brain to remember the beauty of poetic prayer and psalmistic therapy. That's very good. That's very good. I want our listeners to hear another one, Chris. So uh, I'm simple enough that I enjoy a poetry collection's title track. <laughs> And uh, this collection's is the poem Slow God on page 45. So let our listeners hear that one. Slow God. God is, at least from my perspective, slow. He offers an idea. It shocks those who hear him tell mesmerizing angles of what will occur. Then, nothing. Days pass. Weeks pass. Years pass. Decades pass. I expected 40 minutes until the shift from revelation to reality, but 40 days or weeks or years, for us, or at least for me, way too long. That is forever. God is also sudden, the working leisurely from our view, though acting sluggishly, if at all, though fulfilling his own promises slowly in hiding. The long-awaited action occurs rapidly. Many actions seem to happen all at once after the waiting on this forever season surprisingly ended. A slow and sudden God, I consider we can call him. For us, or at least for me, that is good. That is very good. Very good indeed. And this poem doesn't have a footnote, but uh, when I was reading it, Chris, it made me think of Isaiah 40 when, uh, you know, comfort, comfort my people, the time of waiting is over. Uh, Mm. Seems like it combines both of those dynamics that are at play in this poem. Yeah. Well, that's good. I like that. I like, I like you mentioning that. That's very good. Well, this poem, uh, slow God comes from a section that you call confessions, a collection of poems that as I read them, explore different ways that we speak about God and to God. So something more like Paul's, if we confess with our mouth than like James's confess your sins to each other. 
or have I narrowed your focus too much here? Honestly, I believe it's it's uh, it's both um, okay. because you know it's a variety of moods, um, and we in, include those in there. Here, here's here's what what we wrote um, at the beginning of that section of confessions, and this maybe can describe it good for your audience. Um, mm-hmm. Whether seeing a counselor, confessing to a priest, crying while telling painful stories to a trusted friend at dinner or visiting clergy to find reasons for our questions, we all need someone to talk to. We need to release inner hurt. Poetic journaling has been one of my methods of facing grief and finding recovery. And and so I, I, I believe, you know, confessions do fit both of those, you know, related to your question. Confessions are those times where, you know, I'm seeing a counselor and I come home and I journal a poetic form of my response to what I learned from that, or someone is seeing me and then they leave me and I'm, and I'm confessing the pain and the hurt that I feel about their hurts because I can't express it to them. And, you know, I'm the one that is there to help calm them. But confessions, in my opinion, are something that is missing in the Protestant church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's, isn't it wonderful to know that I can pray directly to God and that's beautiful, but I, also feel like there are times that we need to be able to confess to one another. Uh, going back to one of those R's earlier, to be, you know, being willing to realize what's there and respond by releasing instead of holding it in. And, and confessions to me uh, fit so many, so many different uh, platforms of just me praying alone, journaling. Nobody else will know this unless it comes out in a book and I've edited it (laughs) greatly uh, and taken some of the specifics out to make it a little more general. But then also those times when I'm with my accountability partners and I tell them, I am just worn out, guys. I'm just tired today. Or maybe those times where uh, I help my unbelief. (laughs) You know, the honest confessions in, in prayerful and poetic form. And to me, the confessions, when you think about how much of Scripture is poetic, uh, I mean, some people say one-third of the Bible. Of course, Eugene Peterson said even more. And so much of Scripture being poetic. Uh, I mean, the Old Testament prophets, uh, Song of Solomon, Psalms, Proverbs, and and, uh, then, you know, portions of the New Testament. Well, it was real then for them. And now for our reading, it is definitely real for me as a method of of confession. So I, I think I've, I kind of answered your question, but it excites <laughs> me. So I took it in several different directions. Very good. That's fine. And, and it's interesting because I, you know, you and I are both Protestants and a lot of Protestants have a strong suspicion of confessing to people because it strikes us as, as Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I mean, I, I think you make a good case here in, in verse and in your explanation here uh, that we still have that need, uh, even if it takes different forms than the confessional booth. Yeah, and, and honestly, Nathan, some, sometimes when uh, people come in and talk to me for counseling services, I don't give them an answer. You, you know what mm-hmm. has helped them? Just to be able to tell their story sure. and to release their hurt and to still be loved, and then they can walk out with with some healing taking place in their lives because of confessing they are still loved, they're still accepted, and they can— and they can see what God wants to do in their lives next. And in writing these, uh, for me, were, were things that helped me experience that that personally. Good, good. Well, in the same section, like I said, I mean, it's it's a span of ways to talk about God. Uh, your poem, Joining the Struggle, 
strikes me as a kind of homily in verse. It's it's longer than most of the poems in the pieces in this collection, uh, and it joins the stars, the sand, and the night as you know long meditations on one passage of scripture. Uh, yeah. So it made me curious. I mean, you know, uh, how does your poetic process relate to your sermon writing process as a writer? Oh, that's that's a that's a great that's a great question, and it actually is is good. More of us should do that. Even the people who do not like poetry, and just want to give it a try, it's good because it it uses a little different part of the brain. It's a different process of memorization and processing, and and so maybe we should just give this as an assignment for those who who want to try to study a little bit differently, um, but. As you're studying a text, go into it deeply, do the research, uh, go through your process of sort of putting yourself there, focus on the context and the beauty of it. But if you decided to write a poem about it, what would you write and why? How, how would you take it? And think of the scenes and the images and all of those parts that you could put in place. Uh, can't you see how that gets you thinking and breathing about it differently? Uh, I mean, when I when I did a sermon series on the book of Romans, uh, sermon series on First Corinthians, I mean, that's that's two epistles that you normally don't think uh, it's just going to be a nice day of poetry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, this is this is some deep theology and and conflict going on. It's like all of this tension, and and sometimes I wrote some deep theological uh, articles uh, that would be. You know, kind of my prep work for the sermons that I would present as I went through those. But then I would try to, I didn't always do it, but I would try to bring a poetic angle, um, not just to fit my tone of voice in speaking this, but in helping grasp it better. Um, and, and many of those turned into a devotional booklet that we put together for the church that I was pastoring in Orlando. And so the people just had these passages uh, to study and portions that I read, and we had people in the congregation, I mean, portions that I had written and people in the congregation had written. Uh, and it was, that was really fun. I enjoyed, I loved those moments. But, but poetry to me was important. Personally, it helped me, and I also believe it helped me prepare sermons that would be a better fit for the readers in this world, this thing that we often leave out in the beauty of imagination. Very good. You know, imagination is created by God as something that's wonderful, and it's not only that that is to be evil and wicked and we're imagining terrible things. No, let's imagine the beauty in the context of a biblical passage. Well, sure. And poetry I, helps me do that. Absolutely, and and it's interesting. I mean, you know, I'm going to go nerdy for a moment here, but uh, I uh, interviewed John Milbank a couple years ago about one of his recent books, and he mm -hmm. located the the shift from expression as the main metaphor for poetry to creativity as the mm -hmm. main metaphor for poetry long about the the early 1800s. And he, he just noted that, you know, this is one of those places that, you know, reminds us that there's still work to do in theology because for the first 1,800 years of the church, the notion that we were creators in some way that's analogous to God the mm. creator was not a thought that anyone had. Someone had to come along, you know, in the 18th, 19th century to have that thought, and we're still dealing with it now. So, I mean, I it, it's one of those wonderful affirmations that, uh, again, we aren't simply parroting uh, what people have handed down to us, although certainly we should receive it faithfully, uh, but the work itself still generates, you know, thoughts that need thinking.
Yeah. And I dig that. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Chris, we haven't paid a lot of attention to the number 40 the way that this book does. Our listeners who are Bible readers know all about 40 days of rain and 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness, other kinds of 40s in the Bible. Um, you know, are, are you a pirate looking at 40 or is there some other kind of 40 that informs this 40-year collection? Well, that's that's a great question, and and um, meant so much of the initial conversation with the with the publisher and the editors. We were talking about when they decided yes, uh, and the publisher wanted to include all of these poems. We're not going to put them in the order in which they were written. We're going to help them fit moods and bring variety of styles throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, but we wanted to include uh, poems from that many years. And as I'm thinking about four decades, wow, that's so biblical. Then I went back and rewrote uh, the introduction and emphasizing the beauty of seasons. Um, and, you know, two words kept coming to my mind, even though they're you can sort of feel them throughout the book, but they're not emphasized. And those two words uh, are waiting and enduring. Mm-hmm. And I just like waiting because you can see, you know, the pace changing in so many of the poems and we're just waiting, waiting, waiting. And all of a sudden we're speeding up just like I did with the with the slow God poem. You know, he's slow, he's slow, he's slow. And then he's sudden and it happens all at once. And and and. And my original working title, by the way, I don't know if that I've told you this, but my original working title was A Matter of Time. Okay. And so I kind of used that for me. And I, I didn't know that that would be the final title, but it worked for me because I wanted to understand how time does matter. And, you know, not just to use that cliche, but as an emphasis to me mentally. But what is happening when nothing seems to be happening? That even things matter in that moment. Um, and. Yeah, so we changed the we changed the title, but we kept the importance. And then they wanted to add to the subtitle 40 Years of Wonder because of the wonder that I was able to find and the beauty of the pain and the joy and the hope and the hurt in four decades of my life. And it did fit within the you know the overall biblical context of 40. 40 is saying something here. It is it is saying something about the slow, slow pace of God, but the beauty of completeness and accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Very good. I want our listeners to hear another poem, and I just realized that I gave you the wrong page number in our notes, but I'm sure you figured out that silence is on page 102, not 100. Uh, yes. And this is a poem that I read, even though it's not in the confession section, as a confession of sin. So uh, read the poem for us and then tell me if I'm on target or not. Okay. Silence. You are too often missing among us. We raise the noise. We add and add and add more sound to keep you out. We fail to know we need you. We crave you, but misinterpret desires, crafting new trends of sound, volume, on an elevator, music, in a vehicle, music, on an airplane, noise, in a home, noise, noise and more noise, sounds and more sounds, high volume, occupying all we do, Wherever we go, whenever that might be, morning noise, noon noise, evening noise, sounds shift but rarely depart to leave space for silence. We must intentionally choose you. We only hear you, silence, when we work hard to push away the noise and aggressively craft noiselessness. 
my left hand holds the steering wheel and my right foot guides the speed and my left foot rests in her place. I force my right hand to reach forward and turn the radio off. I do not need the songs, the news, the noise. I need you, silence, you, the often missed medicine of my rides. My eyes stare at a device my left hand holds while walking to exercise, but I'm missing the deeper endeavor of a place of placing a phone away, pushing my tasks aside, pausing my hurried mental sprint, and embracing a neighborhood to be seen, a sky to be observed, air to be slowly and deeply breathed, birds, concerts to be heard, and no tasks to be completed. In a conversation with a friend, I can listen, just listen, thinking not of how I will respond. At a meal with myself, I can just eat slowly, calmly, just eat, reaching not for a laptop or phone or other device, staring not at a screen, being, not doing, nothing as a needed something. Resting while in a hurry, appreciating while wanting, grasping while unsure. Silent prayer and thoughts helps me accomplish those goals of little cultural importance but personal need. I need nothing. No noise. Now, I need you, dear silence. I need to hear you and learn about life uncontrolled by the noise that keeps you hidden from us. Very good. So is this a confession of sins, Chris? It is It is my confession of I struggle to notice the beauty of nothingness, of silence. And I, one of my goals uh, as this year is ending, uh, I, I'm looking back at one of my goals for this year was to embrace the silence and fall in love with silence and not turn the music on to stay away from it. And, and Nathan, I struggle with it. I mean, you know, I love music. I love mm-hmm. noise. I love, I love <laughs> conversations. I love people. And there've been times I'm driving to the airport uh, to Atlanta to fly somewhere to speak. And instead of turning that music on and listening to it or being on the phone the whole way, I listen to what I call nothingness. And mm-hmm. I have found beauty in that. And that has not been easy, but it has done something for me. I, I found deeper peace in that, in silence. And I've fallen in love with that as a spiritual discipline. And and it's not really a confession of one particular sin other than my struggle uh, to refuse to embrace the beauty of silence. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily uh, connected to any Taoist or Buddhist, you know, Mm -hmm. metaphysics or anything, but I've started myself trying to take a few minutes each day just to pay attention to the air going in and out of my body and doing a little meditation that way. And it, it, it's definitely a, a shift. You're right. I mean, from the constant distraction, uh, that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so many forces in this world would prefer for us. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, when you think of, uh, it, we talked earlier about my health and, and one of the one of the struggles that my brain goes through because of all the severe scar tissue that I have and and the healthy portions of the brain have to overwork to accomplish. I mean, if you and I had this, you know, if we do this interview for two hours, actually, mm-hmm. my brain is doing the work 
of what someone without brain damage would do in five hours. Yeah. It uses that much energy because it has to go the longer route. <laughs> it has sure. to do that extra work to find a word. Well, can't silence be one of the medicines that I need <laughs> mm-hmm, for me mm-hmm. personally? And think of all of us then with well, – I mean we are all people with scars and wounds and questions and doubts and limps. Well, let's welcome the beauty of, of silence, and it is, it is not always easy to do that. And in spiritual formation class sometimes uh, as we're studying the spiritual discipline of silence – I just walk into class and I sit there with the students and normally, you know, we're just smiling and laughing to begin class before we open with the spiritual discipline. And I just stare, mm-hmm. saying nothing, no music playing, nothing. And they're like, hey, Pastor Chris, are you OK? Everything all right? And they start talking. I don't answer. Seven minutes of silence in that setting is difficult. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like forever. But mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Um. Your poetry, I mean, explores a, a, a good range of personae and tones and all sorts of good poetic things. And one poem that stands out for me uh, for its second-person address is Praying in His Name. Uh, what kinds of experiences shape this one, and, and to whom is this poem speaking? Yeah, and why don't you spell the, the first word there? Oh, yes, 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 yes. P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, as in predator <laughs> yeah. and prey. Yeah, I'd, I would like to get your take on it, actually, because uh, honestly, I was I was angry. I, yeah, I, I felt yeah. anger. And uh, this is when I was pastoring. And Nathan, uh, there were people who were leaving churches and going to a what was called a revivalist. But in my opinion, he was a control freak. And I turned out ah, to be unfortunately okay. correct. Okay. I wish I had been wrong mm-hmm. and that all had been well, but I was correct in that initial discernment or assumption. Um, and as I saw the pain that this did to these wonderful families who were negatively influenced by this showboat preacher, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, 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 it hurt me and I had to calm them, but I still had anger. How was I going to deal with it? So I had to release my anger and I wrote this to him and, okay. and yeah, and the pain was being released that way. Well, and honestly, that that was the uh, ambiguity that I was wondering about because there are parts of it that you know seem to be addressed to a a human being like you or me, and then there are parts of it that seem to be addressed not to flesh and blood but to principalities and powers. Yes. And it seems like I mean I I, I assume that that ambiguity is not unintentional. We we wanted to look at that picture, kind of imagining the face of that person, but also see the big picture of the one behind the scenes that <laughs> is continuing to do this for all of us. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, your poetry are late in the volume, pardon me. Uh, the section called conversations, uh, does some interesting work taking common 21st century phenomena and reframing them metaphorically. I really like this section. Uh, mm-hmm. so how might our, might our listeners see, an MRI in light of the poem by that same name. Oh yeah, that was that was a that was an interesting to, one to write. I mean, all of them are different ways, but you know, I had written about this uh, in my books uh, mm-hmm. because of my brain damage and my illness. And and as a writer, uh, you know, as I'm writing this for therapeutic reasons, just for me, it can just be raw and it doesn't have to accomplish any other goal. Mm-hmm. But when we want to make it available for a larger audience, uh, we have to 
just think differently. And so how can I invite readers to this room where I'm having an MRI? How can they feel what I'm feeling? And so you think of pace and flow and you know, the experience and using my imagination and make it, you know, understandable poetry. But, in our, you know, and I used phrases and here's some of the phrases, you know, image driven culture, mm. uh, a dim room, forceful percussion, you know, just listening to the sound. I could, I could have said, you know, this sound keeps beating, but I, I said forceful percussion because it was like forceful. I could feel it. I'm having an MRI. This is going to tell me if my brain is, you know, if, if I have further damage in my brain. So I, I, I call that sound forceful percussion. And then I call the place cabinet, <laughs> uh, you mm-hmm. know, thoughts traveling in circles. And that was intentional. Uh, and these mysteries and, and, and I noticed. Oh, noticed well, let me end. ask you this uh, on the cabinet. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, is that a, uh, and I might be overreading here, uh, but I mean, I, I heard it as a, a an echo of you know when you pray, do not pray in public, but pray in a cabinet, if you will, where no one can hear you. Yeah, there was a, there was a part of me that's saying, you know, this is not easy, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm in this place that every one of us needs to be. <laughs> it's just me, desperate, in a, I'm hiding away, mm-hmm. held by God, having an MRI. But I'm not putting up a billboard sign now that I'm praying, you know, even though now I'm writing about it. It's it was therapeutic because it was that closet held by him. I was mm-hmm. being held by him, Nathan, n- not knowing what would happen next. You know, my brain damage is severe. I'm on severe dosage of antiepileptic medication. I could have a seizure anytime. I can worry about those things. But why can't we pray inside the machine of our struggle? inside mm-hmm. the cave of our struggle. David in his psalmistic journal entries from a cave, me in an MRI cave, you the reader in whatever cave you feel like you're in, just take a deep breath. And your MRI may be a very different one than mine, but find mm-hmm. him in those moments. That's good. So that was that was what I was feeling going through, but also what we tried to use to turn that into something for the for the larger audience. Very good, very good. Well, some of this book's poems, as you say, I mean, are very uh, personal, occasional expressions, releases of emotion. Some of them are more overtly theological, and the poem Powerless definitely strikes me as a proclamation about God and the human condition. Um, How do these more strident poems relate to the more exploratory pieces? (sighs) You know, to me, it's... I need them all. I, I need mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, I need the small and the large, the shallow and the deep water. <laughs> and uh, to me, those times that I felt like I was able to go a little deeper on kind of a theological angle, uh, I had to, I had to just be willing to go there and and stay there in the water and mm-hmm. just welcome the tension of the place. Um, I wanted it to be unique, and I wanted to have that pace. Um, but, but again, just thinking, of, think of the Book of Romans. I mean, think of the mood. Don't you wish you could have heard the original tone of voice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, as he's saying this, as he's stating those phrases, well, I can't hear his tone of voice. We can use different translations and, and get that and study the context. But I put myself in the place, and I'm thinking, wow, there's there's tension here. Uh 
if I was wording it, I would phrase it this way. And the best way I can do that, uh, the way that my brain works, is a poetic form. And that's how I tried to merge all of those components together. I don't think I'm really answering your question, but but that that is the approach that I took in doing that. Oh, sure. I mean, and, and one translation, Chris, I, I'll recommend to you, and when I'm back on campus, I'll lend it to you, uh, is David Bentley Hart's recent translation of the New Testament. Uh, he is a very literary-minded theologian, and uh-huh. what he tried to do in that translation, I think he did it very well, is to capture capture the stark stylistic differences between the books of the New Testament. Mm. So, I mean, you get done reading Acts, which is this very measured, classical you know, almost Homeric kind of narrative. Uh-huh. And then you turn the page into Romans. And I mean, it is mm. someone who can't wait to finish this sentence before he's two sentences ahead. I wow. mean, there, there's this powerful urgency uh, in Hart's translation. And I mean, you, you go and look in the Greek and I mean, uh, it's amazing. I mean, you know, he really is capturing what's going on there. It's, it's pretty great. Mm. Like I said, I'll, I'll uh, bring it over to your office next time I'm on campus. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Uh, well, Chris, as we wrap up today, I'd like to hear one more of the poems from this collection, uh, namely A Call to Prayer over on page 40, uh, so that our listeners can get one more taste uh, before they go online and order this book. Okay, thanks. A Call to Prayer. He calls us here. He meets us here. Do we hear the calling? Do we notice the presence? If we come at all... Let us come expecting and desperate, full of passion and anticipation, convicted of our sin, convinced of our Savior, seeking for conversation, seeking for conversion, searching for Christ, humble but hoping, afraid but aggressive, reverent but relentless. Name the ones we love, label the pain we hate, mention the darkness we despise, discard the chains that choke us. Admit how hard this is, but learn that it can be done. He is here and we draw near. We bow our heads, we bend our knees, we wait for a power that rides the breeze that blows into a room where questioning seekers become courageous saints, still human, but more whole, still frail, but closer to fine. Still stumbling, but then standing, standing up, standing still, standing for him, standing forever. Father, watch over me, us, them. Doctor, ease the relentless pain. Savior, rescue me. Take this life, these friends, this land. Caress caress us all inside your hand. Hold us in your palm of knowing. Keep us praying Keep us growing. Keep us, we pray. And listeners, I know because I've been at Emmanuel College for 10 years, but uh, you know because I'm about to tell you that this kind of reflection and this kind of thoughtfulness, uh, we get to hear every time you begin a worship service on Tuesday morning, Chris. I mean, that, that, that's a question that, I mean, really I'm, I'm kind of waiting in ambush to ask you is, I mean, is this kind of poetic work informing what you do when you're calling people off of their phones and into worship on Tuesday mornings. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) It's just, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we've, we're so often stuck in this packed full busy room and we fail to notice that the, that the closet to Narnia really is right there beside us. Yeah. And and to me, a different tone, a different mood 
can help us at least turn our heads from that pace and and notice that that grace at the door. Mm-hmm. And and uh and the poetry's done that for me. Writing this book did it for me and and it's been interesting because I've heard from people who do not like poetry at all. You know, some of the some of the people are gonna buy the book and read it because they like me and and they know me. But Honestly, it's been fun for me, Nathan, because some people have said, this is the first time I've ever reading poetry, and now I like it. And I've had people <laughs> start writing free verse poetry that have never written it before. And to me, that's like, yes, that's good. <laughs> good. That is great. That is great. Yeah. Well, Chris, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about poetry, the passage of time? Or anything mm. else as we head for the door. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, and there's a lot of great poets. Uh, I encourage you to read, 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 read scripture, uh, and focus on the poetry uh, and the poetic styles, various poetic styles throughout scripture. Some of the poets who have in- influenced me: um, Mary Oliver, Lucy Shaw, uh, Christian Wyman, Wendell Berry, Kathleen Norris. Kathleen Norris and Annie Dillard are two of my favorite writers whose prose to me is also poetic, and I like that. I like uh, poetic prose and Eugene Peterson and many others. But um, just just kind of advice for you is I would love for you to get a copy of the book uh, and, and notice just the importance of slowing your pace. Maybe you can't do it much, but just a little bit. And notice beauty in the now, wonder in the moment, and, and, and find Find peace in the present. Maybe you have prayed this prayer for 40 weeks or or months or years, and you're so tired of praying, you just believe it will never happen. And Well, enjoy every 40 seconds with the God who is listening but may not be answering the way you want him to, but realize that he is there and he cares, and, and let him. Let him carry the weight that he has the muscle to carry that, that we don't, and the pain of my damaged brain I have to release to him in poetic prayer or whatever form I use, uh, depending on the day and the mood. But but do that also. Spend time in conversation and dialogue. Listen. Don't just talk, but listen, look, notice, and embrace the embrace the beauty of the moments. Chris Maxwell, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. And my, my website is chrismaxwell.me. And, and Nathan, again, I thank you for, for this. Thank you for all that you're doing and, and the influence that you have with our students at Emmanuel College. Listeners, thank you for listening and for downloading this episode. You can get this book, A Slow and Sudden God from True Potential. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.